Good morning. Welcome to Shelby Bible Church. It's so good to see each of you here this morning. Hope you're having a great day so far. The weather's getting better, so it's nice to be out and about. Um, last night we had a teen event, and uh, we went and played knockerball. If you've never heard of it, you basically get into a hamster ball and run to each other real hard. And I am sore everywhere. 30 has not been treating me good so far. But uh, we're so glad you're here and so thankful that we get to worship together, get to hear from the Word of God this morning. And I uh, just want to share a few announcements with you before uh, we get started this morning. The first thing is uh, we are having a pictorial update, and that's going to be on May 2nd and May 23rd. Uh, we like to update this about every other year. We've had a lot of new faces come in, and we like to update uh, this, uh, update this directory. And so uh, if you can come, you don't really have to sign up. You just come that day, and uh, they'll take a picture. It's free, and we'll update it into our directory. And uh, we'd love to have you be a part of that if you're willing, especially for those of you who've had some kiddos maybe grow up in the last few years. Obviously, they change a lot. And so come and get an updated picture. We'd love to have you do that. Uh, the next thing is um, Vacation Bible School. We just want to keep this in front of you. Uh, summer is not that far off. Uh, and VBS this year is going to be July 26th through the 30th. Uh, our ministry team leaders are meeting this afternoon and expect them to start coming after you in the coming weeks. Uh, looking for people to volunteer in different areas. And specifically, we really want to engage and interact with kids uh, in this church and in the community. A lot of people are looking for a place and an opportunity to connect, especially after this last year. And we want to intentionally engage the kids of our community and offer them not only a fun time, but help them to understand who Jesus is and how he can change their lives. And so the whole theme is called Focus, and we're going to be teaching them on what are the most important things in life, and most specifically, how can they know that they're right with God? And so um, that's coming up. And uh, that is, the last announcement I'll make is on May 21st, we are having our growth group training. Uh, so this is for all of our growth group leaders and co-leaders. We're inviting them out for the night to have a time of training. We're going to have all kinds of stuff going on for the kids. We'll have dinner. And basically, we want to celebrate this last year of growth groups and cast vision for the year to come. Uh, so, again, glad you guys are here. If you would, let's stand, and uh, we'll open up our time together with a word of prayer. Father, we want to come before you this morning and just thank you uh, for who you are. Uh, we rejoice in uh, how you provide for us, and we rejoice specifically in the bond that brings us all together this morning, and that is your son, Jesus. And, Lord, we thank you that we can worship and that we can sing and, uh, Lord, I pray as we open the text of Scripture this morning, we pray that it would pierce through to our hearts and that it would cause us to rejoice in who you are and draw us closer to yourself. Lord, we love you, and we ask and we pray these things in your precious name. Amen. Amen. Good morning, Shelby family. Our call to worship this morning is from Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. But made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth, and of those under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father.
Hands, hands on his brow. 
back on. All right, there we go. Thank you, guys. I turned it off in between services. I didn't want you to hear me eating my donut back there in the office, so that I should turn the microphone off. And, um, man, what a joy it is to lift our voice and sing together. And uh, just a moment, we're going to hear the beautiful music. I got to hear it already once today, and you're going to be blessed by it. But let me just say this. We don't, we don't just gather to sing just to fill up time. But when we sing, we open our mouths and we confess some things. And we have been confessing this morning the hope of the resurrection, our refuge that we find in Jesus, the fact that our Lord has overcome, and we confess these things to one another. And so let me just say to you, when you sit in church service, I'm not scolding you, okay? I'm, I'm shepherding you right now, and that's what we're going to use. When you sit in church like a bump on a pickle, and you just, you're not edifying anybody. You say, Pastor, my voice won't edify anybody. If I open my mouth, it'll be worse. I promise you it won't. Lift up your voice and make a joyful noise. Amen. And open your mouth and sing. And I promise you this, the person next to you, you don't know what they're going through or what they've been through. But I can tell you this, what they need to hear is that Jesus has overcome. And your voice lifted up with them. And by the way, this is not just my opinion of the way I would like to do church. But this is what the Paul recommends for us in Colossians 3. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. He said, I want you to teach and admonish each other. So teach means to instruct, to give information that we need to be either informed of or reminded of. Um, and my, my wife, she teaches and admonishes when I'm driving. You don't use your blinkers. Use your blinker. I know to use my blinker, but I need to be reminded of it, amen? How many of you know our hope is in Jesus? And how many of you need to be reminded of that every week, Amen. And so we teach and we admonish. We do both things. Admonish means to encourage, to provoke, to, to rally to them and come alongside of them and encourage them in that. And he said, how are we going to do this in all wisdom? And here's what he says. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankgiveness and thanksgiveness in your heart to God. And lifting our voice and singing. So when we gather on Sunday morning, it's not just about, well, I don't feel like singing today. Somebody next to you needs you to sing. And by the way, you need to sing. We need to lift our voice in thanksgiving to the Lord. And so let me just challenge you on that. It's not just to fill up the time so the pastor can't preach for an hour, okay? But it is to admonish and teach us as we sing together. And so let me encourage you along that line. We're going to listen to a beautiful song, and you'll be reminded of the words by the melody.
beautifully played and a powerful song. Take your Bibles and let's go to the book of 1 Samuel this morning. I'm going to have you go to 1 Samuel chapter 15 and then 2 Samuel chapter 11. And we'll be in both chapters this morning. 1 Samuel 15, 2 Samuel 11. And uh, we're going to read uh, a, a section out of each of these as we begin today. The um, reality of our sinfulness and the capacity of our sinfulness, I don't think we quite comprehend. Joe Dema- Joseph Damask, he was a 17th century philosopher, and he made this statement about the sinfulness of man in our hearts. He said, I don't know what the heart of a villain is. I only know a righteous man's heart, and it's frightening. You know, and ultimately, we generally look at ourselves and think we're pretty good people, and yet when we understand the sinfulness of our own heart, we're frightened by what we see, or we should be. We're going to see the story this morning of two kings and their extreme failure, their sinfulness, and I just want to walk a contrast between these two men just briefly this morning. If you found your place in 1 Samuel, we're going to read there first, then we'll go to 2 Samuel. And if you found your place, let's stand together in honor of the Word of God. And Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them at Tileam, 200,000 men on foot, 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay wait in the valley. Saul said to the Kenites, go depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, and of the oxen, and of the fatted calves and lambs, and all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless they devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me, and hath not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. Let's go to uh, chapter 11 of 2 Samuel now. The first account was Saul, his sin, and now we turn to David. I'm not going to read the entire chapter, so I'll ask you to follow with me as we move through this chapter together. We'll begin reading in verse number 1 again. And in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servant with him and all Israel 
and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Reba. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch, was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and he said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of, the, of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. Let's jump to verse number 9. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. Verse 14 now. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And then in verse number 26, if you would. When the Uriah, wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. She became his wife, bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we ask you that you would take what has been read this morning in our hearing, that, Lord, you would do the work that only you can do, and that is applied to our heart. And, Lord, as we try to walk through this text together this morning, Lord, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to obey. We'll praise you for what you're doing already. Lord, teach me, show me, expose me through this text this morning. In Jesus' precious name, amen. You can be seated there. The story of Saul and David is a very familiar one to us, no doubt. Um, if you've had the privilege of being in church for any length of time, you know the story. If you're new to church and you're not familiar with the story, I just want to remind us a little bit of this uh, background. Saul was the very first king of Israel. He was chosen by the people and chosen by God to rule over the nation of Israel. Samuel had anointed him king. And when we see Saul early on in his, uh, his rule, rule, we find him actually very reluctant to want to step into the role of king. And we find him even reluctant to be anointed king. And, but then as he begins to gain some uh, position and some power and begins to see how this is unfolding, we then find him trying to hold on to what God has given him. And he does so in a very fearful way. And, and this is just one window into Saul's uh, demise that he goes down. Saul was on a trajectory of the fear of man and disobedience to God. And, and we see him in so many different pictures of just doing everything that shouldn't be done by a king. Saul is really a clinical case for how not to lead. And Saul goes through his life in this way. Of course, David comes along during Saul's reign and David actually becomes an armor bearer for Saul, and, and David and Saul run simultaneous for a time, 
as David is working as a, as a, uh, a general or as a leader in the army. Saul becomes increasingly jealous of David because it becomes obvious that David is going to be the one to replace him. And by the time we get into the second account that we read today, we find David already being king for some time now. He has taken over the kingship after Saul's demise when Saul was killed uh, by the Philistines. David now ascends to the throne over Judah and for about seven years he consolidates the kingdom to himself and through some very wise leadership he pulls the kingdom to himself. And God, of course, establishes David as the king over an undivided kingdom. And now David is sitting in his throne. He is continuing the process of driving out the enemies of God from the lands around them and expanding the borders that God intended for Israel to have. And in this account, we see David sitting in his palace, Saul just finishing a victory, and both men have sinned greatly. What I want to do is, let's look at Saul's sin first. Then let's look at David's sin. And you can be the jury to see which one you think is the worst. And then I want you to look, we'll see next, not only Saul's sin, but Saul's attitude and David's attitude. Let's compare those if you would. First off, Saul's sin. I'm back in 1 Samuel again. What did Saul do wrong? God had given clear commands to Saul to go down and to destroy the Amalekites. Now, let's put a pause right here at looking at Saul's action, and let's ask the question, is God's judgment in this text okay? And I, I think this is probably one of the places that we find some of the greatest and harshest criticism against God, in that God very clearly comes in and wipes out an entire people. And we look at this and we think, man, how can that even be just or right or good and, and this harsh treatment of these people? First off, let me make something very clear. This was not a reactionary thing by God, but it was God's purpose for many years to pass this judgment. All the way back in Deuteronomy in uh, chapter number 25. And if we turn there very quickly, if you turn there with me, we'll look. But in Deuteronomy 25, the fifth book, fifth book of the Bible... God is talking to the nation of Israel and giving them some commands. And in verse number 17, he says this, Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt. How that he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you in the land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. God had pronounced judgment on them many generations prior to this. And what we see is God now coming to the fullness of his judgment. So what we have to look at is ask the question, is God just in his judgment? And the answer is absolutely yes. God is just in his judgment. His judgments are always just. I think the issue here we have with this judgment is that not does God have the right to judge, but the question is, can God use any agency to judge? Because when we look at the, 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 the study of Sodom and Gomorrah, we see God raining fire from heaven, and God uses these natural or supernatural elements of fire being rained down from heaven and destroying the cities, and we go, okay, well, God judged that city. And it doesn't bother us quite as much as this text bothers us. 
because God directly judged them. We see him judging the nation of Egypt as he sends the plagues upon them and he wipes out their armies in the Red Sea and we see God judging them. But what I want you to see is that God is still just regardless of the agency he uses. God has sent them to judge and they are to carry about. Let me say this, not only is God's justice or judgment just, his judgment is also sure. I think often we see God's long-sufferingness, we see his patience with man, his endurance with the wickedness of man, and we think, okay, God's not going to judge. But his judgment is sure. We see in the New Testament uh, where Peter writes and he says, hey, they will say in the last day, where is the time of his coming? Uh, We've heard this all along. He's not coming. God's not going to judge. And he said, the day of the Lord will come. The day of the Lord will come. And he said the only reason it hasn't come yet is God is the next thing about his judgment here is his judgment is always long-suffering. God is enduring with men and he endured with these nations. It was always his plan to drive out these people and to deal judgment on them and now he's calling Saul to come up and do so. Now here's the thing I want you to understand. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And if that is true, and it is this morning, then God is right to judge whomever he chooses. And here's the thing. Nobody here could ever look at God with honesty and say, God, I want you to give me what I deserve. Because all we deserve is judgment. We deserve nothing outside of judgment. And so for us to do that, and by the way, there's only one who could say, truly, I don't deserve this. And that was Jesus Christ. As he hung on the cross, he did not deserve the judgment that was being poured out on him. He was taking our judgment upon him. And I'm so glad today that we have a refuge from the judgment of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And so I would say that God's judgment is just, it is sure, He is long-suffering still, and he is sovereign in his judgment. And we rest in that this morning. Now, let's pivot back to Saul for a moment. What did Saul do? Saul is sent to perform an act. He fails to do so. He does not carry out what God told him to do. He spares Agag. This was a very uh, kind of a cool thing to do in this time. That when you conquer an area and you have the king, you kind of keep the king as a, as a servant for you. I mean, how cool is it that you don't just have people washing your feet, you have former kings washing your feet. You have former kings sitting at your table every day, and you have the men who had power and prestige, and it made these guys, as a matter of fact, one king in the book of Judges, he was collecting kings. He would go and conquer different areas and different cities and collect the kings. And when he would capture the king, he would cut off their thumbs and their big toes so that they couldn't do battle anymore and they couldn't run very fast anymore. And he would weaken them and the Bible says that he would have them uh, scrape on the ground under his table for crumbs. And he did so to set himself above these men. His name was Adani Bezek. And so if ever I do a trivia in the Bible, I'll always use his name. So just remember that. All right, so you'll win a trivia if I'm ever leading one. Adani Bezek, he does this. And this was a, this was a very similar, this similar thing that Saul's doing. Is he keeps this king because it's kind of like a, a status symbol. For look at what I've done. And he has this stripe on his arm. But he was told to destroy him. So Saul's sin is disobedience and rebellion. David's sin. Let's go back to 2 Samuel 
as we study through this David's sin. It's the time of the year when the winter has broke, the spring rains have come, and it's time to resume the military campaigns that were underfoot. David does not go with his armies anymore. He stays in Jerusalem, and he sends his armies out to do their work, and David tarries in Jerusalem. I never get to these two chapters where I just want to holler at David and Saul and say, stop, don't go down this line. If I just, oh, I wish I could just pull him back. Because the heartache that's going to follow from this hour is so heavy and it's so destructive. And I wish there was some way you could just pull back on this moment. But what a beautiful picture we get even in the midst of this devastation. David is on the rooftop, and he sees Bathsheba, and she was very beautiful. He begins to lust after her, and by the way, and let's make something very clear, the lust is in the heart of David. David is sinful. He lusts after her, and the progression goes forward that he, he looked, and he longed, and he lusted, and he called for her, and then he forced himself in this moment with power and prestige, and by the way, I don't for one minute think this is just an affair. David is using his power and his office to get what he wants. It's abuse and no two ways about it. This is rape. David uses all that he has in his prestige and his influence and he calls her to him. He now has this whole cover up and I I love the scripture, by the way. Scripture knows what it's talking about on all avenues here. The Bible tells that she conceives a child And she sends word to David, David, I'm with child. We see the abuse of power. We see the abuse of his office. We see the abuse of an innocent woman here. And I'm not saying that Bathsheba was not a sinner. She is a sinner before God. But David abused this situation. So what does David do? Let's call Uriah home. He sends word, hey, send Uriah back from the battle with a report of what's going on. Uriah comes back, he shows up at David's palace. David's like, okay, what's going on? Yeah, 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 go home and see your wife. And his thought was, I can get him to go home and be with his wife, and then that'll cover up the fact, and nobody will think it was me, and everything's good, and Bathsheba won't say anything because she'll be afraid to, and Uriah won't know anything, and it's all going to be hunky-dory. And yet what he didn't expect was he was coming up against an honorable man. And Uriah says, no, I'm not going home. How can I go home when the ark of God is at battle and his people are in the field fighting? My soldiers are out there. I'm not going to go home and be with my wife and rest in the comfort of my home while they're in battle. And can you imagine how that must have stung for David when David is the one that lingered in Jerusalem when his soldiers were out at battle? So the next day, David calls Uriah back in and says, hey, why don't you go home and enjoy your wife and your your home and rest? And he says, no, and so David said, well, let's have a dinner and then I'll send you back. And he tries to get him drunk that night. He plies him with wine and hoping that he can lower his resistance and he'll send him back home. And Uriah still refuses to go home and takes his evening on the steps outside of David's palace. David realizes he wasn't going to get Uriah to do anything wrong in this scenario. And 
David not only has committed this heinous act with this man's wife, he's now attempting to cover it up by using this man to cover up his sin, and he's trying to trick this man into even uh, violating his own conscience. So he writes a letter to Joab, and he says, put Uriah at the front of the battle where it's hot, and then without telling him, retreat, and he'll die. So he puts it together and he writes this out and then he folds the letter up and puts the, the king's seal on the letter and puts it in the hand of Uriah himself. And says, Uriah, take this to Joab. And Uriah goes back unwittingly and unknowing that he's carrying his own death sentence in his hands. And he goes to Joab and he puts the letter in his hand. And let me say something about Joab. Joab is a snake in the grass. Joab is a political opportunist all through the story of David's, David's reign. And you just go through and read about Joab. Joab was looking for an opportunity. No doubt he opened that letter and he saw it and he's like, I got one on him. I'm cashing this in for later. He, I, no doubt Joab kept that letter. No doubt he knew he had David over a barrel in this moment. And he was going to use it and he does use his, his influence with David later on. David uh, gives the command. Joab then follows through on the command. And by the way, God give us somebody that would say no to even people in, in authority and power. No, I'm not doing this. No, I won't execute this man. David, what are you hiding? Joab doesn't do that. He goes right along with it. Puts Joab in the front. They retreat. Joab is killed. Message comes back to David. Hey, we had a little bit of a, a setback in the battle, but, Joab, but Uriah died, and David's like, oh, don't worry about it. God will give us the victory. It's almost nauseating to hear David's words. Just be of good courage and put the fight on stronger, he says later on. So they win the battle. Bathsheba grieves over the loss of her husband, and when her time of mourning ends, David rushes down and magnanimously saves the day. I'll bring her into my harem and she'll be a part of my household. I'll care for her and man, aren't I a gracious guy? And David puts on this front of caring for her and then we get to the end of this, this, this chapter and it rings so loud in my ears. The last line, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And Saul, you may think that what you're doing is not seen by God, but God sees and God hears the bleeding of the sheep. And David, you may think you've covered it up and you've saved face, but God sees and God knows. We see Saul's sin. Now, if we were to put these two men on trial this morning for who was the bigger jerk, who is the bigger one that you would just like, I, I, I mean, when I, when I read about these, who, who do you look at and think, who's the worst? I got to pick David. David, you're beyond a scoundrel here. I mean, I wouldn't, not only do I not want you to be king, I don't even want to be your friend. I don't want to be around you, man. How can you go through this and you do all of this wickedness and this evil? You know, Saul, on the other hand, we might look at him and we could almost identify with him. Well, I mean, I get it. We've all stopped short a little bit of what God, I mean, we did most of what God wanted us to do. We just didn't do it all. 
We just didn't follow all the way through with it. And so when we look at the sins, we see David's sin is so much more offensive to our, our, our nature. And I think that is naturally so. But Saul's sin, let me make something very clear, is still a treason against the holy God. It is still rebellion against the God who called him to be king, and he's violating what God called him to do. And so we see their sins in this contrast. Now I want you to see Saul's attitude. Go back to 1 Samuel. Saul, you've sinned. Samuel's going to come down, and he's going to confront you about your sin. And I just want to say a thank God for a Samuel and for a Nathan that we're going to see in this story. Men that would walk in and say, you've done wrong. And he calls the king on the carpet here, and he says, what means the bleeding of the sheep in my ear? And he says, why have you done this? Samuel, or Saul rather, responds in verse number 15. They have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And the rest we have devoted to destruction. What does he do? I mean, what's his first response here? Blame. It's shifting the blame. It's ignoring responsibility. Oh, no, no, no. They brought them. I obeyed everything God told me to do. It's the people that spared the ox and the sheep. It's the people that spared Agag. It wasn't me. And in case you think this is just a slip of the tongue, he continues on and doubles down in verse number 21. But the people took the spoil of the sheep and the oxen, the best things, uh, have devoted to destruction, to sacrifice the Lord your God in Gilgal. The people, the people. Look what he says in verse 20. And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord and have gone on the mission which the Lord sent me. And I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil. What is he doing again? He's continuing to double down on his blaming and his not taking responsibility, his refusing to acknowledge his sin. The people. Again, verse number 24. And Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. We can't even get a full confession out of the guy before he's still blaming someone else for what he's done wrong. Well, God, I I mean, I know you told me not to eat the fruit, but it's the wife you gave me. Well, God, I know I'm not supposed to do that, but you just don't know the people in my family. Well, well, God, I I know that I'm not supposed to do these things, but have have you met the people that go to church with me? And we want to blame and shift the blame. It's exactly what Saul's doing. He refuses to take the blame. He blames the people time and time again. So we see Saul's attitude. Hypocrisy. He claims to obey when he's not obeyed. He justifies it by pious reasons. Well, here's the thing. They did spare the oxen, but the reason why is we wanted to offer sacrifices to your God. It's just a pious reason. Oh, well, we're going to offer sacrifices. That's why we're doing this. And we justify so many things in our heart because we say we're doing it for a better reason. But here's the thing. Samuel very clearly says to him that obedience is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. He said, God is more willing that we be obedient than we step above and beyond. Just doing the normal things that we're called to do is the most important thing we could do. And Saul says, oh, no, no, we were, we were going to sacrifice to God. What is he doing? He's rationalizing his disobedience. And that's what we do, is it not? 
we rationalize our disobedience. What it means to rationalize, it means to tell ourselves rational lies. Lies that we can believe. And we apply them to our heart and we justify the next step and we justify the next step before we find ourselves so far away. So Saul's attitude, your fault. He blames and refuses to own his sin. All through this chapter, he said, this is not my fault. Samuel says, look, God is done with you. You're not going to be king anymore. God has torn the kingdom from you. He said, I'm not going to go before the people. I'm not going to honor you before the people. Verse 27 of chapter, 11, of chapter 15, and Samuel turned to go, and Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel said, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to your neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regrets. And what does Saul want? Hey, please, help me look better in front of the people. Please, honor me in front of my people. So what is Saul's attitude? What is David's attitude? Go back to chapter, our second Samuel. We're going to go to chapter 12 now. This account is so stark and it's so eye-opening. Nathan comes. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. And he came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city, and the one rich, the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds. But the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought, and he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. And it used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. And he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. And David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives and the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Man, Nathan comes in, doesn't he? Man, thank God for Nathan. Nathan comes in, he goes, hey, king, I have a story for you. Poor man, little lamb, only one he had. Family loved him. He ate at their table. He drank out of their cup. He was like a daughter to him. The rich man comes in and steals the lamb away from the poor man and gives his friend that lamb to eat. He tells the story, and no doubt, this is not lost on David because David's a shepherd. David knew what it was to be connected to those sheep and to love those sheep. And David, no doubt, had carried one of those ewe lambs on more than one occasion close to him and cared for it. And he knew what it was to be connected. And I picture David in my mind coming up out of his seat. Who is this guy? We'll deal with him now. He'll pay back fourfold. And he's not even worthy to stay alive. David, in his anger, rises up. And Nathan in his boldness says, and look at the next verse, and Nathan said to David, verse 7, you are the man. You are the man. You have done this, David. 
the God of Israel that anointed you king over Israel hath delivered you out of the hand of Saul and gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if it were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord? To do evil in his sight, you have struck down Uriah the Hittite with your sword, and you have taken his wife into your, to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me, and have taken the wife Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes, and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son." For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. David doesn't look at him and say, it's not my fault. It's her fault. It's my wife's fault. He didn't stand back and say, hey, you just don't know how it is to run a kingdom. You don't know how hard it is to be a man in this society. You don't know how bad it is to live the way I live. He doesn't push the blame off. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. And by the way, his response, look what his response that he gets then. And he said, and God hath put away your sin, you will not die. You know, when I look at these two men and their sins, I have to say my natural eye looks at David and said, David, how could you? Saul, I understand, David, that's going a bit far, man. I mean, David, I, I, I would almost say, David, your sin is so much worse. And, and, but here's the thing. God doesn't judge the way I judge. I'm not God. You're not God. And God looks at the heart of these two men. And here's the thing about sin. It's not just about our sin. It's about our heart about our sin. And when Saul is called on the carpet, he blames and points fingers and refuses to take ownership. And David, when he's called on the carpet, he said, I sinned against God. And what we see is the beautiful poetry of Psalm 51 when he says, Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. Behold, I was shaped in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Wash me, he says, thoroughly from my iniquity. Purge me from my sin. He's pleading with God to create a clean heart in me, O oh God. Restore a right spirit within me. And he runs to the only one who can deal with his sin. Why do you think that's the case? And I think it comes down to their relationship. And here really is the crux of the issue. What is Saul's relationship with God? And what is David's relationship with God? Look back in chapter number 11 again of 1 Samuel. Saul's relationship, verse 15. And Saul said, Well, they have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord. And here it is your God. Your God. And in case you think this is a slip of the tongue, he jumps ahead to verse number 21, and he says again, but the people took the spoil, the sheep, the oxen, the best things, and devoted the destruction to sacrifice to the Lord, your God. And one more time, he says in verse number 30, he says, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel. Return with me that I may bow before the Lord, your God. 
And on three occasions, he says, he's your God, Samuel. I want to honor your God. I want to obey your God. But what was David's response? David said, no, 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 not your God, Samuel. You're the one that anointed me king, but he's not your God. He said, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. And David understood that it was a personal relationship with the holy God. And this morning, I don't know what your sin is. I don't know how bad your sin is, but the issue of your sin is not so bad is the response to our sin is the response to our sin my sin my fault because he's my God and by the way the only way you're going to see your sin as being your fault is when you see him as your God when he is your God you will see your sin as your fault and you'll stop pointing fingers and you'll stop blaming David's heart was broken by his sin. Saul's heart was hiding from responsibility. We know the story, do we not? Saul was pulled from his kingdom. David was restored. Yes, there was pain, but David was restored. So this morning, what is your sin? Now make no mistake, we live in a day of wonderful grace where we understand that because of the cross of Christ, my sins are gone. Yes, my sins are gone. Buried in the deepest sea. Yes, that's good enough for me. Hallelujah, my sins are gone. But let me make something clear. If you think that's a license to continue down sin and it'll never affect you, don't, don't believe that lie of the devil in this age. Sin still brings destruction today and it still separates our heart from God and it separates relationships. The wages of sin is still death. Make no mistake, don't play with sin. Don't mess around with sin. Sin will take you farther than you want to go. It'll keep you longer than you want to stay. It'll cost you more than you want to pay. Every time it will. The severity of our sin is not seen in what it costs us, but it's an offense to a holy God. That's the seriousness of our sin. If you think this morning somehow or another, well, you know, I'm just being a guy. No, you're not. You're committing adultery. And it's in your heart. Well, you say to yourself, well, I mean, I'm just having a good time. I mean, we're just checking this out to see what it'll be like before we get married. No, you're not. You're living in fornication. And if you think your sin's not bad, then what you need to do is look at the cross and understand what it cost our Lord to pay the sin debt for us and see his blood and see the nails and see the cost of the cross. And by the way, though, if you think for a second that your sin is final, then you need to look at an empty tomb because it's not final. Up from the grave he arose. And here's the thing. We have to go through the progression where I see my sin and what it did. And then I understand what his cross has done. And then I understand the hope that the empty tomb gives me. We have to go through that process. And it is only through that this morning that you can say, he's my God. And so, what is your sin? You know what it is. What is the Spirit of God is driving you home in your heart this morning? Don't leave it sit there. Don't leave it undealt with. Confess and forsake it. Sin always starts small, does it not? And it builds and it builds. So then what is our attitude? Is our attitude like Saul who stood and blamed everyone else? 
And by the way, we live in a society that takes no responsibility for anything. It is a part of the air we breathe, young people. Listen to me. We are taught this now. The reason why I'm depressed is you did something to me. I'm not talking that your sin is wrong. What I'm saying is we need to separate the arguments. Here's the thing. If you're a jerk, you need to repent. And if you're selfish and you can't get over that, you need to repent of the own thing that's in your heart and take it to the Lord who can heal it. Instead of standing back in a corner and blaming everybody for the fact that you feel isolated. Amen. We spend all this time blaming everybody for our condition instead of saying, here's the reality. The reason I don't get along with people is because I'm a sinner full of pride. That's why I don't get along with people. My heart is full of pride. The reason I have bias in my heart, I have anger and wrath and hatred in my heart, and out of the abundance of the heart is what's coming out of me. That's my issue. You say, yeah, 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 but you know, they did wrong too. I'm reminded of what my dad said to me a long time ago. He was about to give me and my brother a whooping. And I was running in front of the church, and he said, Michael, Mark, come with me. And I started running with him. And I hollered at my buddy. I said, hey, Philip, come with us. I didn't know I was getting a whooping. Hey, Philip, come with us. And I remember my dad looking at me and stopping, and he said, his daddy will take care of him. I knew we weren't getting ice cream after that, all right? And by the way, let me make something very clear. Their daddy will take care of them. We have to deal with our business. We have to get right with God. Could David have blamed Joab? Joab didn't have to follow my orders. He could have stood up to me and stopped me. Maybe he would try to blame Bathsheba. But David doesn't do any of that. David doesn't go down the list of his other's wives. Well, they're just not meeting my needs. And justify his behavior by that. No. He said, I have sinned against God. I'm the one that's done wrong. So what is our attitude toward our sin? Are we blaming it? You see, I even think sometimes we look and we say, well, you know, it's, it's my wife's fault, it's my children's fault, it's my parents' fault, it's my, my husband's fault, my church's fault. Well, the reason I don't go to church is because there are mean Christians. There's hypocrites. Yes, there are. Yes. And on some days, I have to sign up for that. The fact is, there are. The reason we walk away from the grace of God what we do is we, the reason we wonder is because we are walking away from the goodness of God and we're using sinners as the excuse for doing it. See, I desire to rebel against God in my heart. And but by the grace of God, we would all be in rebellion to him. So then what is your relationship with God? This morning, it is not a corporate relationship. It is a personal relationship. It is not a cultural relationship with God. Well, you know, I, you know I, I, some people are Christians like they're, like they're Republican or Democrat. Let me say, make something very clear. That is not where my Christianity lies. My allegiance is to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's about a personal relationship. And this morning I belong to a kingdom that is far bigger than this kingdom. And by the way, it's going to endure far longer. And it's going to be a far better kingdom. And everything that is unjust here will be made right there. And we would say, even so, come Lord Jesus. 
And I can rejoice in that. But it is not some kind of cultural response that I am a Christian. No, I'm a Christian because I saw myself as a sinner before a holy God. I realized what the holy God did on the cross. And I accepted him by faith. And now the resurrected Lord gives me his Holy Spirit power to do the work that I couldn't do. And you know what that work is? It is love and joy and peace. Because I promise you this, that's not Mike Montgomery. That is only Jesus Christ. It's not a cultural thing. It's a personal relationship. It's not a family religion. It's a personal relationship. Now I'll close this illustration for our young people. I had the privilege of growing up in a pastor's home. And having grown up there, I mean, it was Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. And, you know, somebody said I was raised on drugs. I was drugged to church on Sunday, drugged to church on Sunday night, drugged to church on Wednesday night. That's just what we did. You didn't get an option. There was never a question about it. And I'm 17 years old. I got a job. And dad says, uh, what's the schedule like this week? I'm like, well, I work Wednesday night. He goes, not through Bible study. You don't. I'll be there 30 minutes before Bible study, and I'll bring you back 30 minutes after. Uh, Well, what if he won't give me the time off? He ain't your daddy. I, I, I kid you not, all right? I kid you not. And I promise you this, I was always more afraid of my daddy than I was anybody I worked for. I still am. Um, so the, uh, the fact is I, I knew I was getting off 30 minutes before Bible study and I was going to church. And we did. We had that our whole life. And I thank God for the heritage. Thank God for the love for the word of God that I was taught. The word of God was lifted up as our authority. And we're reminded of it week and week and week again. That the word of God is where we find our authority. Thank God for that foundation. But at 16, 17 years old, I worked the job and began to be questioned about, hey, man, we're going to go play some football on Sunday afternoon. I'm like, what time? He goes, oh, we're going to get there about 10 o'clock. I'm like, I can't go. You can't go. Why not? It's just one Sunday. I'm like, no, I can't go, man. And my my first response is, well, you know, I got to go to church. But the longer they begin to press, I'm like, well, my parents, they, they want me to go to church. I don't have a choice. They're making me go. My parents make me go, you know. Well, hey, can you work Wednesday night? No, my parents won't let me. What was I saying? That's their God. That's their decision. That's their belief. And I think too often my, 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 my heart drifted. And guess what? Guess what happened when I began to drift there? Then the sin wasn't my fault anymore either. It was everybody else's fault. And I remember as a 17-year-old boy, I got down on my knees at a campsite. We had gone to Canaan Land Christian Camp in Alabama. It's about the only thing good in Alabama I know of. uh, Where's the deans? Yeah, they're they're, they're over there. No, no, no Alabama. But... I remember going to that camp, and on a Tuesday night, God dealing with my heart. And I said, God, if this is what you want me to do, I'll do it. And I surrendered my heart again to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I remember the tears just running down my face and filling up in my pillow behind me. And I said that night that he is my God. This is my relationship. My sin is my fault. And God is my Savior. And this is the course that God has called me to walk. Let me say this morning... Stop with, well, it's theirs. Here's the thing I I want to do. I want to raise up men and women and young people that the whole of the church, we can't even gather anymore, that wherever you go, you'll start a church. 
Pastor, I have no idea. Here's the thing. When the church is under persecution, one believer, two believers, three believers makes a church. And do we have a relationship that say, it's just not about getting together with our buddies. But whether my buddies go or don't go, he's my God. And I'm going to serve him until the day I die. He's not just dad's God. He's not just the preacher's belief. It's not just what Pastor Caleb taught us. But he's my God. My sin is my fault. And my Savior is my hope. Let's bow our heads this morning. Father, we ask you that you'd help us to have a heart that is surrendered to you this morning. Oh, Father, I pray that you would just work in our midst to do what only you can do. Lord, ultimately, we can't make the application. You've got to make it to our hearts. And Lord, I pray, Father, that you would awaken what is wrong inside of me this morning. You expose my sin to me, that I might confess it, draw closer. Father, thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Rest in that this morning. With our heads bowed, I just want to ask a question before we go to song. If you're here today and you say, Pastor, if this were my last day on earth, I don't know that I could say that he's my God. If that's you, if that resonates in your heart, would you please not leave here today before you confront somebody? We'll take the word of God and we'll show you from the scripture how you can know that heaven is your home. We'll explain the gospel to you. And if need be, we'll meet with you several weeks in a row to explain it. We'll take all the time you need. We'll start a conversation today. And we'll stay with that conversation until you understand. Don't leave here today until you get that settled or you start that conversation. I'll be here at the front after service. Feel free to come down. Talk with me, stop Pastor Caleb, stop one of our deacons. Say, that's me. I need to talk to somebody. Let's stand to our feet and we'll sing together this morning. I love you, Lord. Oh, your mercy never fails me all my days. I've been held in hands from the moment that I wake up till I lay my head I will sing of the goodness of God and all my life you have been free
God's people said, amen. It's been good to be together today, and we're looking forward to our Wednesday night gathering back for Bible study and our teen gathering as well as Awanas, and it's an exciting time to be uh, a part of our Wednesday night program right now, and uh, looking forward to that. Before you go this morning, I want to introduce you to Miss Shannon. Do you want to come down here now, and maybe you can come stand with her if you like, and uh, so she doesn't have to stand by herself, but Miss Shannon uh, Thiel, am I saying your last name right? Theo? Theo, okay. Miss Shannon Theo, she's uh, gone through our, our new members class that we just finished up today, and she is coming, uh, requesting membership in church. If you're glad she come, would you say amen? amen? Amen. So we want to dismiss today and have you just come by and greet her and welcome her into the fellowship, all right? God bless you. We'll see you on Wednesday night, okay?